Chapter Fifteen of Woman as Decoration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Vermeulen. Woman as Decoration by Emily Burbank. Chapter Fifteen: The Story of Period Costumes. A Resume. Our present modes of dress, aside from the variations imposed by fashion, are the resultant of all the fashions of the last two thousand years. W. G. Sumner, in Folkways. The earliest Egyptian frescoes, invaluable prehistoric data, show as woman as she was costumed, housed and occupied, when the painting was done. On those age-old walls she appears as man's companion, his teacher, placing slave and ruler, in whatever role the fates decreed. The same frescoed walls have pictured records of how Egypt tilled the soil, built houses, worked in metals, pottery, and sculpture. Woman is seen beside her man, who slays the beast, at times from boats propelled through reeded jungles, and hers is always that rigid outline, those long quiet eyes depicted in profile, with a massive headdress and strange upstanding ornaments, abnormally curled wig, and close straight garments to the feet, or none at all, heavy collar, wristbands and anklets of precious metals with gems inset, or chased in strange designs. About her, the calm, mysterious poise and childlike acquiescence of those who know themselves to be the puppets of the gods, in this naivete lies one of the great charms of Egyptian art. A sculptured karyotide, we see woman of Egypt clad in transparent sheath-like skirt, nude above the waist, with the usual extinguishing headdress and heavy collar, bracelets and anklets. We see her as woman, mute, law-abiding, supporting the edifice, woman with a steady gaze and silent lips. One wonders what was in the mind of that lotus-eater of the Nile, who carved his dream in stone. Those who would reproduce Egyptian colour schemes for costumes, house or stage settings, would do well to consult the book of Egyptian designs, brought out in 1878 by the École des Beaux-Arts Paris, and available in the large libraries. On the walls of the necropolis of Memphis, T. and his wife, Fifth Dynasty, appear in a delightful hunting scene. The man in the prow of his boat is about to spear an enormous beast, while his wife, seated in the bottom, wraps her arm about his leg. Among the earliest portraits of an Egyptian woman completely clothed is that of Queen Tyre, wife of Amenophis, 18th dynasty, who wears a striped gown with sleeves of the kimono type and a ribbon tied round her waist, the usual ornamental colour, and bracelets of gold, and an elaborate headdress with deep blue curtain extending to the waist behind. Full of illuminating suggestions is an example of woman in Egyptian decoration to be seen as a fresco in the necropolis of Thebes. It shows a governess of a young prince, 18th dynasty, holding the child on her lap. The feet of the little prince rest on a stool, supported by nine crouching human beings, men. Each has a collar about his neck, to which a leash is attached, and all nine leashes are held in the hands of the child. The illustrations of the Egyptian funeral papyrus, the Book of the Dead, 
show a woman in the role of wife and companion. It is the story of a high-born Egyptian woman, Tutu, wife of Ani, royal scribe and scribe of the sacred revenue of all the gods of Thebes. Tutu, the long-eyed Egyptian woman, young and straight, with raven hair and active form, a keymate of Amon, which means she belonged to the religious chapter or congregation of the great god of Thebes. She was what might be described as lady-in-waiting, or honorary priestess to the god Amon. She, too, wears the typical Egyptian headdress and straight long white gown hanging in close folds to her feet. One vignette shows Tutu with arm about her husband's leg. This seems to have been a naive Egyptian way of expressing that eternal womanliness, the tender care for those beloved, that quality inseparable from woman if worthy the name, and by reason of which, with man her mate, she has run the gamut of human experience, meeting the demands of her time. There is no dodging the issue. Woman's story recorded in art shows that she has always responded to fate's call, followed, led, ruled, been ruled, amused, instructed, sent her men into battle, as Spartan mothers did, to return with honour or on their shields, and when fate so decreed, led them to battle, like Joan of Arc. 2. Egypt and Assyria In Egypt and Assyria, the lines of the torso were kept straight, with no contracting of body at waistline. Woman was clad in a straight sheet-like garment, extending from waist to feet with only metal ornaments above, necklace, bracelets and armlets, or a straight dress from neck to meet the heavy anklets. Sandals were worn on the feet. The hat was encased in an abnormally curled wig, with pendant ringlets, and the whole clasped by a massive headdress, following the contour of head, and having as part of it a curtain or veil, reaching down behind, across shoulders, and approaching waistline. The Sphinx wears a characteristic Egyptian headdress. 3. Egypt, Byzantium, Greece, and Rome During the periods antedating Christ, when the Roman Empire was all-powerful, the women of Egypt, Byzantium, Greece, and Rome, wore gilded wigs, see plate 1, frontispiece, arranged in psyche knots and banded, sandals on their feet, and a one-piece garment, confined at the waist by a girdle, which fell in close folds to the feet, a style to develop later into the classic Greek. The Greek garment consisted of a great square of white linen, draped in the deft manner of the East, to adapt it to the human form, at once concealing and disclosing the body to a degree of perfection never since attained. There were undraped Greek garments left to hang in close clinging folds, even in the classic period. It is this undraped and finely pleated robe, see play 21, hanging close to the figure, and the two-piece garment, see plate 4, with its short tunic of the same material, extending just below the waistline in front, and drooping in a cascade of ripples at the sides, as low as the knees, that Fortuny, Paris, has reproduced in his tea-gowns. An Englishwoman told us recently that her great-great-grandmother used to describe how she and others of her time, empire period, wet their clothes to make them cling to their forms, a la grecque. The classic Greek costume, 
was often a sleeveless garment, falling in folds, and when confined at waistline with cord, the upper part bloused over it. The material was draped so as to leave the arms free, the folds being held in place by ornamental clasps upon the shoulders. The fitting was practically unaided by cutting, squares or straight lengths of linen being adjusted to the human form by clever manipulation. The adjusting of these folds, as we have said, developed into an art. The use of large squares or shawls of brilliantly dyed linen, wool, and lady silk is conspicuous in all the examples showing woman as decoration. The long Gothic cape succeeded, that enveloping circular garment with and without a hood, and clasped at the throat, in which the Mother of God is invariably depicted. Her cape is a celestial royal blue. The stained silk gauzes, popular with Greek dancers, were made into garments following the same classic lines, and so were the gymnasium costumes of the young girls of Greece. Isadora Duncan reproduces the latter in many of her dances. In the chapter entitled The Story of Textiles in the Art of Interior Decoration, we have given a resume of this branch of our subject. The type of costume worn by woman throughout the entire Roman Empire during its most glorious period was classic Greek, not only in general outline but in detail. Note that the colourless neck was cut round and a trifle low. The lines of gown were long and followed each other. The trimming followed the hem of neck and sleeves and skirt. The hair, while artificially curled and sometimes intertwined with pearls and other gems, after being gilded, was so arranged as to show the contour of the head, then gathered into a psyche knot. Gold bands, plain or jewelled, clasped and held the hair in place. In the gold room of the Metropolitan Museum, in noted collections in Europe, in portraits and costume plates, one sees that the earrings worn at that period were great heavy discs or half-discs of gold, large gold flowers in the Etruscan style, large rings with groups of pendants, usually three on each ring and the drop earrings, so much in vogue today. Necklaces were broad, like colours, round and made of hand-wrought links and beads with pendants. These filled in the neck of the dress, and were evidently regarded as a necessary part of the costume. The simple cord, which confined the Greek woman's draperies at the waist, in Egypt and Byzantium became a sash. A broad strip of material, which was passed across the front of body at the waist, crossed behind and brought tight over the hips to tie in front, low down, the ends hanging square to knees or below. In Egypt, a shoulder cape with kerchief effect in front, broadened behind to a square and reached to the waistline. We would call attention to the fact that when the classic type of furniture and costume were revived by Napoleon I and the Empress Josephine, it was the Egyptian version as well as the Greek. One sees Egyptian and Etruscan styles in the straight, narrow garment of the First Empire reaching to ankles, with parallel rows of trimming at the bottom of skirt. The empire style of parted hair, with cascade of curls each side, righteous curling locks outlining face, with one or two ringlets brought in front of ears, and the psychonaut, which later in Victorian days lent itself to caricature, in a feather duster effect at crown of head, 
were inspired by those curled and gilded creations, such as Thais wore. Hats, as we use the term today, were worn by the ancients. Some will remember the Greek hat Sibyl Sanderson wore, with the classic robes when she sang Massenet's Fidre in Paris. It was Chinese in type. One sees this type of hat on Tanagra statuettes in our museums. Apropos of hats, designers today are constantly resurrecting models found in museums, and some of us recognize the lines and details of ancient headdresses in hats turned out by our most up-to-date milliners. Parasols and umbrellas were also used by Assyrians and Greeks. Sandals, which only covered the soles of the feet, were the usual footwear, but Greeks and Etruscans are shown in art as wearing also moccasin-like boots, and shoes laced up the front. Of course, the strapped slippers of the empire were a version of classic sandals. As we have said, the Greek gown and toga are found wherever the Roman Empire reached. The women of what are now France and England clothed themselves at that time in the same manner as a cultured class of Rome. Naturally, the Germanic branch, which broke from the parent stem and drifted northward to strike root and unbroken forests bordering on undried seas, wore skins and crudely woven garments, few and strongly made, but often picturesque. Though but slightly reminiscent of the traditional costume, we know that women of the third and fourth centuries wore a short one-piece garment with large earrings, heavy metal armlets above the elbow and at wrists. The chain about the waist, from which hung a knife for protection and domestic purposes, is descended from the savage's court and ancestor to that lovely bauble, the chatelaine of later days, with its attached fan, snuff-box, and jewelled watch. End of chapter 15